for listening to that. We want you to understand what it means to be part of a church. So thank you for that. Uh, Everybody, would you turn to Philippians chapter 3? That's where we will be today. Jill, can I hand you this? I don't drop it. Thanks. We'll be in Philippians uh, chapter 3. Thank you, those of you who uh, prayed this week for the uh, marriage conference we told you about. We hosted Thursday and Friday uh, 18 churches from around the state. Had a wonderful two days of looking at the gospel and how it applies. So thank you for being a church that cares about other churches. There's a lot to pray for uh, there. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 3 today. All of you should cry when you have to leave the sermon. That's important. <clears throat> Two years ago, more than uh, 36,000 runners hit the pavement for the 118th Boston Marathon. If you follow races, you may know that that was over 30% more runners than the previous year. Perhaps you remember why. Um, In 2013, two bombs exploded near the finish line, killing three and wounding scores more just as they were finishing this grueling race. Many lost limbs from the shrapnel from the bombs as it destroyed tissue beyond the point of healing. It's a horrible thing. The Boston Marathon, from then, the last two years, became more than a race. It became about defeating the ideology of hate and fear so common in our age of terror. That race, two years ago, was filled with emotion And the last two years, it didn't disappoint. Two years ago, for the first time since 1983, an American won the race. It's the stuff of Hollywood, really. Meb, the winner, wore the names of the three who died the year before on his race bib, and he ran his heart out. Not only did he win, but he became the oldest person to win that race Since 1931, as he crossed the finish line and won the prize, people were chanting USA and draped a flag around his back. Politics aside, whether your heritage is to be part of uh, America or not, whether you're here as a student, this was an incredibly moving scene. To win any race, let alone the Boston Marathon, A runner's life must be about one thing, one thing, running to win the prize. Meb didn't decide a month before the race, I think I'll go run that thing in Boston, right? His whole life for months and months and months and months and months, from the moment he got up to the moment he went to sleep, was about winning the prize. Running is a huge piece of the training puzzle. Someone like Meb would have run typically somewhere between 90 and 140 miles per week to get ready for the race. That's more than some of us drive in a week. But that's only part of the preparation. There's lots of other things that have to happen. There's strengthening the core, buying the right clothes, diet, Sleep, keeping stress level as low as possible, 
developing the mental stamina that it takes. All of this has to come together in just the right way for a runner to win the prize. Well, in our passage in Philippians chapter 3 today, we encounter this exact thing, a runner running a marathon. That's the metaphor that lies behind the analogy that lies behind the passage we'll read. And its function is to motivate us to run the race of the Christian life with one goal in mind. The last several weeks, we've been exploring Paul's life as a rubric for coming to understand our own life, our own race of running the Christian life. And today we come to what's the conclusion of his personal testimony. Paul tells us what one thing he was running the life for, and then that way he's going to motivate us and encourage us to run our Christian life with one thing. So look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Philippians 3, verse 12. <clears throat> he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, here's that running analogy. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This running metaphor for the Christian life is about one thing, namely, living life to know Jesus fully and be transformed by him completely. So that's literally all we'll talk about this morning. What would it be like to live life in such a way that the one thing, the top highest priority was to know Jesus fully and be transformed by him completely? Now, how did we get there? How did Paul reached that point in this story. Well, jump up to verse 10. We'll see the transition that he's making that we talked about last week. That I may know him, that's Jesus, and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Today, Paul exhorts us to live for that one thing that we Run the race of life every day with the goal of knowing Jesus and being transformed by him. Well, if you watched the uh, Olympics a few months ago, particularly track and field, you will remember likely that every race involves at least three things. First, there's a starting block where the race begins. Second, there's the race itself. And finally, there's the prize or the finish line. So we'll use that today as a, a way to understand this passage and walk through it. So the starting block, the race itself, and the prize. And as we consider all three of those today, our one thing, Christians, must be learning to run the race of life to be about Christ and being transformed by him completely. 
Now, to do that, the first thing we have to do is jump off the starting block for the right reasons in the right way. And Paul starts here, uh, frankly, at a place that we don't want him to start, but it's here. So the great benefit of covering as a church, just working through books of the Bible, passage by passage by passage, is we're forced to deal with what God says instead of just picking the parts that we would want. None of us in the room today chose to be conceived or to be born. All of us are alive due to the actions of two other people. Now, in a sense, the same thing is true for us spiritually. None of us in the room chose mainly to be Christians. But prior to our free choice to follow Christ became God's choice of us. Few of us struggle with the plain teaching of the Bible more than this. It's what theologians call the doctrine of election or predestination. To be honest with you, my reaction to this in my 20s, early 20s, as I began to see it on nearly every page of the Bible, was that it nearly pushed me away from Christianity altogether. But just as it occurs so so frequently in the Bible, it also occurs so potently. As Paul thought about running the race of the Christian life, what motivated him to jump off that starting block day after day after day after day? Or to put it another way, what formed the bedrock confidence in Paul's mind that he could finish the race, that he could win the prize, that it was worth jumping out again and running hard after Christ? What drove him to that? The doctrine of election. That's so plainly put in verse 12. Let me read it again. Not that I've already obtained this, meaning this full-orbed knowledge of Jesus Christ that's conformed him completely. Not that I've obtained it or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christian, Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. He's grabbed you. He's held you fast. Before you freely chose him, and you had to in order to be a Christian, Christ Jesus freely took hold of you. My friend, that is the great confidence that we have before God, is that God in love has grabbed us, and he's holding us tightly. He's holding us close. Notice none of you are shouting amen. This isn't a truth we like but it is the truth that we ought to hold most dear because it is what gives us the confidence that we can finish the race. And even more than that, that it's worth getting up another day and doing all the things that the Christian life entails because in the end, it's not up to you. Christ has already laid hold of you. And so good day or difficult day, day full of resisting every temptation you face or doing things you never imagined you would do. Christ has laid hold of you. And so you can seek to lay hold of him. What a beautiful truth. Christian, you are his. 
He has made you his own. Your confidence that you will finish the race and be given the medal of eternal life with God forever is the glorious truth that Christ has already laid hold of you himself. Now this isn't brand new news. Early in the letter, Philippians chapter 1, Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now let me say that in what is a far less offensive but absolutely still true way. All of this means that the starting gun, the bang, that goes off at the start of the race, the starting gun that signals you to jump off the starting block and run the race another day is nothing more than the sound of grace. It's grace that rings in our ears that tells us to start again. It's grace, not works. It's not the sound of regret. It's not the sound of God's anger. It's the starting gun of grace that motivates us to get up and run again. That is exceedingly wonderful news. You see, our confidence in running the race is not in our performance, but in Jesus' vastly superior prior performance. You see, his righteousness has already been given to us. So we stand and we run, not to earn something, but to please the one who's already bought us, who's already made us right with him. Now this is, every analogy that we would take to try and understand this can be taken too far and misunderstood. This one's no different, but it helps get at the picture. It's, uh, the NBA started this past week. Some great games. Golden State lost their first game. Oh, Dre. It was April last season before they lost a game at home. So they signed a big player. Many of you know we're from Oklahoma. Kevin Durant left Oklahoma City to go to, yes, that's right, Abby, left Oklahoma City to go play for the Thunder. Now, the next game he played much better. He won. The team won. The difference between the first game and the second game wasn't, was Kevin Durant trying to become a warrior or not? He already was. What secured his place on the team? He he signed a contract before the season ever began. He's no more a warrior the second game than he was the first game. But all season long, what does that superstar want to do? He wants to live in light of the contract that's already been signed. He's not trying to earn a place on the team. He's already got it. You, Christian, are not trying to earn a place on the team. Christ signed the contract for you, not with ink, but with blood. He bought you. He put you on his team. He's yours. You're his. Therefore, Play the game hard. Run the race with vigor. Jump off that starting block as you hear the sound of grace. You see, the Christian life should be lived the most passionately by the people who understand the doctrines of what made you a Christian the most closely. 
every Christian can say, Jesus has given me the upward call. I'm confident in Christ today. Even though I'm not yet fully conformed to his death, even though I still need to experience more of his power, I will. So I get up and run. Now, incidentally, do you see the humility and freedom that that way of life can bring? Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? Paul in verse 12 states rather plainly, don't misunderstand me. I'm still a schmuck. I haven't yet arrived. I'm not yet perfect. Now that's in the same chapter that up in verse 6 he said, I used to consider myself blameless. As to the law, as to righteousness found in the law, blameless. A few verses later, I haven't yet arrived. I'm not yet perfect. Imagine what it was like to maintain that facade. That I have so obeyed the law, all of everything God has ever said, that when you look at me, you see someone perfect. That's what Paul's saying. Imagine what it was like to live day after day after day after day, having to maintain an external sense that I'm right in every way. That must have been absolutely exhausting. Some of us in the room come from cultures where shame is the highest ideal to avoid. If we don't perform perfectly, especially in the culture of the family, then we are shamed and shunned. And instead of running the race of life, we just want to walk away in shame. Paul used to give the public impression that he was blameless. But the fact is, nobody is. Except for Jesus. Now that's why Paul can say so clearly, in grace, with humility, publicly open, I'm not yet perfect. And yet there was no shame. Can you imagine being freely able to say, here's all the ways I'm still struggling. I don't have to maintain some arrogant, prideful, false, phony sense of having it all together. I don't. But Christ does. So I'm running hard after him. This ought to be the most honest, transparent, bizarre room in Tempe, Arizona. Brothers and sisters, let's let grace motivate us to run the race. To jump up every day, running hard after Christ, hearing grace ringing in our ears. Because that's what we have, is grace. So that's how Paul says he starts this race. Now, what about the race itself? Well, running the race of the Christian life requires a passionate commitment to press on, to run lap after lap after lap after lap, even when we're exhausted. Now that's the exact phrase Paul uses in verse 12 and in verse 14. He says, I press on. I press on. Church on Mill, I would ask you, is your Christian faith marked by a grace-driven pressing on? If somebody looks at the habits of your life personally, 
would they say, here's a person that's pressing on in Christ day after day after day? Is there a tenacity about you to know Jesus more? Do you yearn for personal holiness? Do you often think about the spiritual progress of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, trying to help them grow and mature? Well, if so, praise God for that, right? What a gift. But perhaps some of us would say, no. I'm really more sitting on the racetrack than up and running. Well, if so, today's the day for repentance. You see, it's God's kindness that leads us to say, I haven't been living this life, this Christian life, very well. It's God's kindness, His grace ringing in your ears that would motivate you to stand up and put on that knee splint you might need because you haven't been running for a while and get back in the race. God's a God of grace. You can repent of sitting and stand up and start running again today. May we pursue Christ as our one thing together. Well, how? Well, thankfully, the passage tells us that pressing on requires a three-way orientation. Pressing on requires a three-way orientation. You may have noticed that Paul talks about past, present, and future. Who knew our English would come in handy? Good old grammar. Look at the latter half of verse 13. It says, but one thing I do. Past, forgetting what lies behind. Future, straining forward to what lies ahead. And present, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Forgetting the past, straining towards the future, pressing on in the present. That's how you run the race of the Christian life. Let's spend a moment on each one. First, forgetting. Every runner knows the one thing you don't do is look behind you. If you're running a race and you're in the lead, the dumbest decision you can make is to turn around and see where are the people behind me. Why? You might fall down. You might slow down. So there are all kinds of reasons. One, you might trip and fall. Two, just simply by turning, you're slowing yourself down. There's some very famous races where people have done this and fallen. There's some where they've done that, gotten back up, and surprisingly still won. But a runner knows, don't look back. Christians ought to know that too. We're often consumed with our past. Instead of looking ahead, focused on the finish line, we can find ourselves as believers turning, looking at our past, things that we've long been forgiven of. Instead of focusing on the future, many of us stare backwards. Brothers and sisters, stop worrying about past failures. Stop. 
Stop boasting in past successes. Quit pulling out that old resume of self-righteousness. All those things do is slow down the progress of knowing Jesus more. Instead, let Paul be your guide. A couple weeks ago, we talked about verse 8, where Paul names all his former attempts at righteousness to be scubalon. Nobody returns to their scubalon. Nobody. What do you do with scubalon? You flush it. Nobody goes back day after day after day lifting the lid looking for what has long been departed. But brothers and sisters, how many of you are doing that spiritually? How many of you are lifting the lid of your past, staring in at what even what's not even there anymore? Christ has flushed it. It is gone. Why are you staring at what is no longer there? Christ has forgiven you. And not only that, Christ has given you the gift of his righteousness. You have been made new. We've also got to let go of past failures. Quit rehearsing your past. Shame and guilt ought not be your closest companion. Maybe it was that abortion you had or that genuinely awful thing you said to your kid. Maybe it's the failed marriage or ruining that relationship with a roommate. It is easy to feel like a second-class Christian, particularly if you've done things you know to be heinous. But nobody here trumps Paul. No pun intended. Before God saved Paul, do you know what he did? He killed Christians. The very first person that was killed for his Christianity was a guy named Stephen. You can read about this in Acts. Paul was there. He held the cloaks of his friends who threw rocks at Stephen so many times that it killed him. Can you imagine how many times as Paul got up to preach, he must have had that image flash back in his mind? As he stood before people to present the gospel to them, and he saw in his mind's eye, I stood and held as the first Christian was killed. It had to have happened. And yet Paul was a disciplined athlete. He took his Christianity seriously. So he would tell that thought, no, I have been forgiven. I'm going to not look at what I did in the past. Instead, I'm going to strain forward to what lies ahead. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. What a gospel Paul preached. What made him such an explosively powerful missionary? It's that he used to kill Christians. And he came so face-to-face with a gospel, with a God of consuming love. I couldn't help but tell everybody. 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that may sound absolutely asinine to you. Why in the world would someone find it healthy to say, I'm going to forget the most terrible things I've ever done? Well, friend, this is in fact the great scandal of Christianity. You've likely heard that Christians believe Jesus died on a cross. He did. But why? Why is that so important? Well, this is the great scandal of Christianity. It's the message that Jesus Christ, the only sinless person who ever lived, gave himself up in place of sinners. And as he was nailed to that cross and died, the horrific thing that actually happened there were not the nails that went through his wrists was not the crown of thorns that was pressed in his head. It was not the nails driven through his ankles. It was the fact that this one who for all eternity had never known sin became sin for us. Took upon himself those great actions of Paul of killing Christians and took upon our sin as well. He took the punishment you and I deserve for all the awful things that we've done so that we don't have to. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you can know the freedom of forgetting your past because Jesus can release you from it. Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He, God, does not deal with us according to our iniquities, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Wow. To run all of life towards Jesus, there must be this daily commitment to forget the past. Not because the past doesn't matter, but because it's already been dealt with by Christ on the cross. Christians, we ought all to have strategic amnesia, forgetting our past. If you don't, then you will make yourself susceptible to false teaching. That's what was happening to the Philippians. They were forgetting that they were already forgiven and they were falling prey to a message that they had to believe in Jesus and yet obey all kinds of moralistic, perfectionistic types of laws or they couldn't really be good with God. They'd forgotten what they were already forgiven of. Let's not make that mistake. Let's rest in Christ, remembering Him, not remembering our past. Now, the second part of this is reorienting ourselves towards straining ahead, towards the future. After forgetting what's behind, Paul should pursue knowing Jesus more by straining towards what's ahead. Brothers and sisters, let's be reminded today of what lies ahead. It's absolutely wonderful. I'll just read it. It doesn't even need comment. It comes from the second to last chapter in the Bible talking about the future. It's a vision given to John where he says, Then I saw a new heavens 
and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth, that's this one, had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he, this is Jesus, who's seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That is our future. No ifs, ands, or buts. That is what will take place. So we forget what's behind and we press forward to that as our goal that enables us then in the present, day in, day out, to press on. To not quit, to not be complacent, to not drift. No passivity for the genuine Christian life. This certain past being resolved and that certain future heading our way means in God's sovereignty, Christian, you can press on today working out your own salvation for God is at work in you. This is the brilliance of Philippians chapter 3. Starting that race with the starting block of grace, running that race in the same grace. And finally, looking to the prize. Now, what's the prize for the Christian? You had to ruin it, Dre. <laughs> I grew up hearing from lots of different types of preachers that the prize of the Christian life is to collect a lot of crowns. And that I somehow could enjoy heaven more if I did more in God's grace on earth. Very popular teaching out there. There are some verses that if you do some twisting and straining, you can make them say that. But the prize, actually, is God himself. The prize is this full knowledge, experience, being formed to Christ, being with Him forever. There is nothing better than that. That's the prize. And the more we forget what's behind and look forward to what's coming, will we press on today. And the more we'll come to know the one who we will fully know forever. So that's why we get up and run every day. Not in self-effort, but in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and be fully conformed to Him, experiencing the fullness of Christ, that's the goal. Now what do you do with a message like this? 
frankly, I'm well aware that it can be momentarily inspirational and then long-term defeating. So what do we do with it? C.J. Mahaney says of this passage, what one thing could you change to pursue the one thing that matters most? I think that's exceptionally wise. Let me read it again. What one thing could you change to pursue the one thing that matters most? I wonder if you would take that to heart. What's one thing you could do based on what God has said to you today? If you're not yet a Christian, perhaps that one thing is to ask someone who you know that believes in God if they would meet up with you and start reading through the Gospel of Mark. Chapter by chapter by chapter, just read it. Talk about it. Consider what it says. Maybe that's the one thing for you to do. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, but you believe in Christ, that he came and died and rose again, perhaps you're at that point where the one thing for you to do is to actively trust to turn your life over to Christ, to be forgiven, to accept him as your Lord and Savior. So we'd love to hear about your decision to do that. If you're already a Christian, what one thing could you change in God's strength to pursue Jesus more? One thing. There's quite a few stay-at-home moms in our church. I have tremendous respect for you. A a stay-at-home mom has no moments to yourself. Not even scubalon moments. You have no moments to yourself. But... Could you set aside the commitment to read one page of something scriptural, meaningful, helpful to your own heart? One page. Could you do that? Maybe that's your one thing. If you're here and you're a Christian, but you found yourself unable, seemingly trapped in an addiction to pornography, the one thing you may need to do is quit messing around half-heartedly with this. Turn off the internet. Throw your computer in the trash. Whatever you need to do on that computer is not more important than your need to follow Christ. If you're a, a Christian here, but you've not yet obeyed God's call, to be baptized. Baptism is weird. It's getting put underwater in a big group of people. But it's gloriously beautiful. It is the wedding ring of the Christian life. It's the the public symbol of saying, I identify with Christ and his people. Maybe that one thing you need to do is to tell a leader today, I'll do it. Yes, I'm scared, but I'll do it. If you're a Christian here today, maybe that one thing you need to do is ask someone who's a little further along in the Christian life than you are. Guys with guys and gals with gals. To say, would you spend some time with me? 
don't do the thing where you go to somebody and ask them to commit. Until we die, would you gather every week with me at Starbucks? Just say, would you commit to, to two or three times of talking to me about some ways I could mature spiritually? Maybe the one thing you need to do, Christian, is nothing. Because you are exhausting yourself. And you just need to go home and take a nap and rest in the grace of Christ. Whatever that thing is, may we run to take hold of Christ. Because Christ has already taken hold of us. Let's pray. wonder before I voice a prayer on behalf of all of us, if you would take a moment, again, believer or not, to ask God, God, what is that one thing you would have me do to pursue the one thing that matters most? Give a moment of just silent prayer, and then I'll close us in prayer.